Um, welcome to the uh, late afternoon meeting, speakers meeting, how it works. Today uh, I'm going to tell my story and I have two good speakers with me. But before I do that, I'm going to ask Dan to read how it works. Thank you, Dan. Um, again, my name is Susan and I am an alcoholic. Um, and I'd like to share my story with you and tell you a little bit of how it works for me. Um, I came from an alcoholic fa family. My father was the alcoholic, and in the jargonese of today, my mother was the codependent. It was a quiet, quiet family with no feelings, no emotions, no very little talking, great deal of emphasis on performance, and so my brother and I both have degrees in the healthcare field. Um, I vowed I would never be like my father. Uh, because I, I didn't like what alcohol did f to him. Uh, the first time I had a drink, I was going to a party. I was uh, at university, and I really didn't know what to drink. And the fellow I was with, I turned to him and said, well, wh what am I going to drink? Like, and he said, well, ladies drink gin. And I said, okay, great, I'll drink gin. And I drank gin that night, and um, I drank martinis, and I drank gin and tonic. And, and from that first night, the, 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 there was never enough alcohol for me. I remember having three or four drinks that night, and uh, there wasn't a lot of gin. And I took the gin bottle and put it up in the cupboard to make sure that for the party there would always be enough of gin for me. And after the party, I went home with my boyfriend, and. I was still living with my parents, and I went to bed with uh, drunk, and I woke up in the morning with a hangover, and I vomited into the bathtub. And I could hardly wait to get back and do the same thing again next weekend. And I had a hangover from the first drinks I ever took. Uh, always had a hangover, and um, didn't prevent me from drinking. In fact, I think the hangover was was helpful to me because it, it was like the alcohol. It kept me away from the real world. So I could go out and party on a Saturday night, and Sunday I would have a hangover. And because I had a hangover, I didn't have to go out, or I didn't have to entertain, or I didn't have to do the things that I would normally have to do. I could be involved in what was most important in my life, which was me, myself, and I. And so I had another day of me. And that's how I lived. Uh, my life. Um, through medical school, I was, uh, I, I was smart, I was popular, and um, I partied. And I thought it was a good idea to burn both candle, the candles at both ends. And I was able to do that, or so I thought I was. Um, medical school was fun for me. It was a, 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 an escape from, from my family from the silent, cold family, and I thought I was doing the right thing to be partying and studying, and I thought it was great to party all night and then go in in the morning, you know, to a class, and I remember taking exams, psychiatry exams, and partying all night with my husband and friends, and getting up in the morning, and I obviously hung over, but at that age not feeling it, and going into the exam and getting an A, and I thought I was really winning. I was doing wonderfully. In my 20s, I went through a residency program uh, in cardiology, so that was a fairly hard residency program. So I would alternate between drinking and, and, and partying and working. 
And I've always said I've never was, took alcohol into the hospital or into my practice. And I, I did on two occasions, but I was impaired. I would go to work the morning after the night before, and I would be hungover. Um, didn't bother me in my 20s. I was young and healthy. And then in my 30s, as I started practice, um, and I found the drinking a little harder to maintain because I always had a hangover. So a party night for me was a two-day business. I'd have the party and then I'd have to recover the next day. And as the, re as the hangovers got worse, as a, any good doctor, I learned to use the benzodiazepams for the hangover. So I would take, a, and I wouldn't take Valium because I knew that was too long a half-life. So I would take something like Cirax. And so the Sunday I would just take a couple of Cirax and some aspirin and I would sleep. I didn't mix, this is the insanity of the disease, I didn't mix alcohol and uh, the benzos very often, but I needed the benzos for, for, for my hangovers. I needed the aspirin. Instead of treating, you know, instead of stopping drinking, I just kept making it easy or, or trying to maintain my drinking pattern. In my 30s, I was fairly busy woman because I was cutting down on my drinking at this point and controlling my drinking. And that's a very, very hard job. By the time I quit drinking, I was not drinking that much. But I mean, it's a very busy, I found it very busy to be going out to a cocktail party or to a party and have to watch how much I was going to drink and who was seeing me drink. And, um, and I would usually leave a party at 9 or 10 at night, having only drank moderately. Then I'd come home and I may pour myself a little bit of wine. I'm a Montrealer and I did most of my drinking in Montreal. So alcohol and partying and good food was, was really part of my life um, uh, and work. And so uh, that was my life up until I moved out west at the time when my divorce became final and also the political situation in Quebec was... Um, was not to my liking, as be, being an English Quebecer. Um, so I came out west and I took the geographical cure. And, um, and it didn't work, of course, because I, I came. Um, and, but I, again, cut down on my drinking. And um, uh, I just, it's really, and was working and drinking, but drinking much more moderately. And there came a period in my life where I was um, actually part-time, I was working in a prison situation. And I got involved in, in some ex, I got involved in some work programs and work release programs for ex-offenders. And I, and they were drugging and drinking. And I thought I could really help them. Uh, and I was obviously better than them because I was just drinking and they were drinking and drugging. And it got quite, quite wild and hairy, and I, I, I thought I was a really, really smart to be doing all this. And when it finally got to the point that these people that I was involved with, who were ex-convicts, were, were actually could be quite dangerous people. And I got to a stage one night where there was some, uh, an, some a murderer actually, or somebody who had been charged with murder in my house, and. Um, uh, and it was a you know a lovely townhouse with two fireplaces and I mean I say that because um, they say you know you reach your bottom I was spiritually and morally and and professionally certainly bankrupt and I became 
financially bankrupt too, but at that particular point I wasn't. But when my life was threatened, I suddenly, that night, it was a very dangerous situation and people were very volatile. I thought, this is insanity. I must stop drinking. So I did stop drinking and I stopped drinking on my own because I didn't need any help and I understood alcoholism and I understood drugs. And I stopped and um, I stopped in October I drank at Christmas because there were friends and it was a Christmas day and then I stopped after that then I stopped until February and um, there was a crisis and I drank again in February and then I stopped and I was really uh, and I knew that I was an alcoholic I didn't want help I knew I'd come from an, uh, a dysfunctional family so I, I decided to go the easy route so I went through the ACOA adult children of alcoholic and I went into that program because God forbid I would be an alcoholic and besides which I had more or less controlled my drinking so I was very lucky in ACOA it was a good program and there were wonderful people there and there was a woman in that program who used to say that she sobered up in another program and I suspected that other program was AA finally I spoke to her and explained that you know I was not only ACOA but I was AA and she suggested I go to a meeting and when I walked into my first AA meeting uh, after probably five or six months of sobriety I knew I was at the right place and when I saw the, the steps on the wall and I saw these things and restore us to sanity I really knew I was in the right place and it was that sanity that that, that caught me and then um, I felt like I belonged. I, you see how it worked for me. I still was reluctant to get involved with this program and these people, and they weren't like myself. And I was different. I was a doctor, and I knew all about the disease. So I, I would go to the meetings, and I would feel uh, connected, but I wasn't going to commit myself to anything. And then finally, I joined a home group. One. Uh, because things were just going from bad to worse for me emotionally and I joined that home group and I still felt a little bit outside it and fortunately in that home group there was a women's step meeting and I started and I was told I got a good good sponsor the sponsor said stick with the women because if you don't because you can't bullshit the women they've been where you've been uh, and you know it was much easier to talk to men because they're much gentler and kinder to you but if you're with women uh, they've been where you've been and they don't really care who you are they just care uh, they don't care what your title is they care who you are as a person so I started going to this step meeting and and I sat there at the step meeting for the first year with my hands crossed my arms crossed and I didn't believe a word what these women said they said it does get better one day at a time I thought this is bullshit you know but they said keep coming back and so I kept coming back and fortunately I was with a really generous kind group of women and slowly slowly by those step meetings that in my selective memory I, I thought I attended every one of them I've told been told since that I would attend sort of as necessary however I did go to the meetings. I didn't do the steps in sequence, but I did go to the meetings. Um, slowly, um, 
I started taking the 12 by 12. I also thought I could learn the 12 by 12 by osmosis. I didn't have to read it. If I just had it by the bedside, it would work. And I realized I had to pick the damn book up and read it. Um, and so I, I very slowly um, began to, to, take, to, to listen to what was being said. Since that first women's group, I've done, because I believe in this uh, studying by osmosis, I've forced myself to go to Novelco step groups because I found that for me, that's how the program has to work. I have to get in, I have to commit myself to a group, and I have to do the steps in sequence. And when it's step four and when it's step five, I have to do it. And so I've done two more Novelco series. I'm now in another step meeting because for me the steps are the program. The general meetings are wonderful, but it's the step meetings that are for me. Uh, I can get all the answers in the step meetings. I don't like the answers, uh, but I get the answers in the steps. Um, so the step meetings are 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 my are the program for me. I'm presently moved out to the country and I'm in a step meeting and it just is a miracle for me. There's about anywhere from at this step meeting 15 to 30 women each Monday night and um, we have to break into twos and three groups sometimes because there's so many of us and it's a new step meeting for me but I know for me the program is only going to work when I work the steps and the only way I know how to work the steps is go to step meetings. The only way when the step meetings works, it means I do the steps in sequence. And, um, you know, uh, I do the steps four and five. Uh, the first step four and five I did, I'm sure like all of us, was it was a difficult one. I'm, unfortunately, I'm finding I have to do quite a few step fours and fives because I, um, I'm able to be a little more selective, but I always assume it's somebody else's problem. You know, if only they act differently and I cannot and now that I have a little bit of sobriety I can sit down quietly and I can tell them you know it's your problem like if you would only be different things would be better and then and I do this process and then you know I eventually I realize no it's not their problem it's my problem and I have to go back and I have to write step four and then after I have to write step four I have to go and talk to somebody about it so at this stage in my sobriety, I do a lot of step fours and fives. Um, I hope one day maybe I won't have to do as many, but it's the only way I know uh, to deal with uh, um, the issue I have that it's other people's problems or it's other people's attitudes. Or, you know, I'm learning slowly through the, these steps that you know I have to take life on life's terms and. And by doing that, I have the choices and freedoms and happiness, which, which I have never, never had before. By doing the steps with the women, I have a new type of relationship with women, a relationship that's on a more equal level, uh, that has more uh, companionship and friendship and, and trust, something that I was really um, lacking in. The type of friends I'm choosing today because of this program are different than the friends I had before. Uh, they're much more accepting of me. Um, I can be much more honest and real with, my, with them and with me. And when I make a mistake, uh, which is often, 
Um, they're less critical of me than I am of myself. Um, I can choose things that I, I never, never thought were possible. I can choose friends and, and jobs and times and um, people that I, when I was drinking and drugging, I could never, never do. One problem I have is that I, I know and I've been told that I can plan I can, I can plan the course of any event, but I can't plan the outcome. I still like to get my hands in there and plan the outcome, and that causes me quite a bit of trouble. But slowly, I hope through working the steps, um, I will not plan the outcome. Because when I let go, and let go and get my will out of the way, things work out just wonderfully for me. But when I get my will in there, then we're into a real, things are always a catastrophe for me, always a catastrophe. I don't think I want to say too much else uh, right now except that I'm grateful to be here, I'm grateful for the program. It works for me because I have to literally work it. I hate it sometimes, I don't find it easy. Um, but as I said once before, all the answers for me are in the steps, whether I like them or not. And um, grateful to be here. I'm glad to be sober, and thanks for my sobriety. I'd like to introduce our next speaker now. It's Dan from Washington, and he's going to be talking about getting real. My name is Dan, and I'm an alcoholic and a connoisseur of various and sundry, sundry other pharmaceuticals. I, I think I'm getting better um, because in preparing for this talk, and this is, this is the third time I've talked at IDA since I've joined this organ organization back in um, 1979. I'd been sober, I was sober a few years when I when I joined it in 79, but the first talk I gave, I was just a wreck. And I'm not quite sure um, why I was a wreck, but I, uh, I think, uh, you know, I had, obviously all you people were my friends, but uh, I think my relationship with myself wasn't very good at the time. So it was very difficult. And I spoke a couple of years ago in San Antonio, and I was better. But um, I stayed up half the night preparing my talk uh, and had a minor sheath of papers prepared for the occasion, which, which I actually didn't use, but I had them all ready. And last night I slept really good, and I've hardly, uh, I've hardly done any preparing for this thing. I had a little walk uh, uh, late this morning around Stanley Park and talked to my higher power and made sure that he was awake and listening to me and was going to not desert me up here um, and got my thoughts in a little semblance of order. Um, what it was like and what happened and what it's like now, I want to keep my drunkalog part fairly brief because you've heard enough stories and mine isn't uh, different from most uh, in general details and then a few from fairly specifically. 
Um, I was not a big flashy alcoholic. I was a, a fairly low-key, one of the people who sat around late at night and drank quietly and got even with all the bastards who had done me in during the day. Uh, I had uh, one of my other tricks late at night was to conduct symphony orchestras. I, uh, I um, used to listen to very heavy music, Mahler symphonies, for those of you who are familiar with that. I'd be standing there in my, in my shorts uh, with my headphones on because I didn't want to wake anyone up and blasting this stuff through my ears with uh, a baton um, conducting in, with, a, with obviously a large tumbler of wine in the other hand, what any good conductor conducts with. And uh, that was the high point of my day, by far. Um, and that was, that was while I was uh, an intern and resident. I really started, uh, I started drinking um, kind of in a low-key fashion, uh, maybe in college, um, and it got a lot worse during medical school years. I started having anxiety attacks uh, in medical school before drinking was a real problem. And uh, I diagnosed myself as having an anxiety neurosis uh, and uh, decided to, to drink a bit for it. I did see a psychiatrist about it once. The psychiatrist sat down with me, talked with me. Um, he was a Freudian, standard Freudian psychiatrist who provoked you by his non-response and by just sort of glaring at you and um, looking like an inscrutable sphinx there. And I'd get very, very anxious during those sessions, but at the end I knew I was going to get my payoff because what I had to, what I got the payoff for enduring all of this anxiety was that he would and invariably say that uh, I was very, very nervous and obviously needed something to calm down, so he gave me... Uh, um, a supply of meprobamate originally. I told him I didn't like that, so he gave me Cirax, which, which Susan mentioned, good drug. And, uh, and I determined that uh, this would maybe how I was going to have to survive. I wasn't pleased about it, and I used alcohol as judiciously as I could, but I figured just to survive, just to get through the day, just to, to feel like I could... Um, carry on my responsibilities as a, as a medical student and later as a house officer, I needed this uh, stuff to get me through. And uh, it worked. worked for a long time. took a lot of effort to talk to detail men and connive them and uh, later on to write prescriptions um, for non-existent relatives. Um, and, and the predictable occurred, things gradually, you know, I, I was using this to treat my isolation, to treat the, the sense that uh, over the last couple of days we've all heard about, that the sense of just not quite belonging, just not quite fitting in, uh, uh, Stan Gitlow's talk about the, about the crossword puzzle. And, um, and the chemicals worked predictably to control that for a long time. Uh, the volume went out, went up, and... Um, I always felt that I was doing a superb job towards the end by keeping my uh, use down to about, I was actually using about six or seven quaalude a day. That was considered a, a good low, low day along with about 100 milligrams of Valium and, some, and a variable amount of alcohol in the evening because I obviously didn't want to smell during the day. And I did use when I was, when I was at work. I uh, didn't think it impaired my effectiveness. Uh, I thought it helped. I was such a nervous wreck that uh, if you were me, you'd use that stuff too. So that's what I did. 
the uh, and then the, the the course of events went the way you'd expect them to go. Uh, the isolation that originally seemed to be uh, helped from using the medicines just seemed to get worse and worse. And I had those occasions where the where the stuff just wasn't working. We had we had gobble as much as you could, and you you didn't get the required result. And the big book talks about that as being. Uh, um, a frightening period in your in your drinking career, and certainly was in mine. And I, I hope I never forget that. My uh, my career, I did some sort of geographics, working my way gradually from the East Coast to the Midwest as a house officer, and then a couple of years in the Air Force in Idaho, and then uh, out to Seattle area to do a two-year fellowship, which turned out in, in gastroenterology, which turned out to be kind of a disaster. Um, my boss was a an authoritarian, uh, perfectionistic sort, and uh, I didn't work out to be the fair-haired boy he thought I was, and he was very angry at me a lot. And I spent a lot of my time trying to make him happy, and I couldn't seem to make him happy, and I couldn't figure him out, and he obviously couldn't figure me out, so he kept calling me in for these little meetings. They're always having meetings about our kind, and uh, the GI division at the University of Washington was having lots of meetings about me. And finally, he called me in and said that uh, he didn't know what was going on with me. Uh, he'd asked me whether I drank, and um, I said, no, I don't drink. Uh, and I made a litany of all the problems that I had. And, uh, he semi-bought into it, but then just got angrier and angry at me and told me that he didn't know whether I had a, a brain tumor or whether I was crazy or, um, or what was going on. But he refused to certify me as a gastroenterology consultant, that he would not uh, write a recommendation for me. And the curious thing is that didn't, uh, that didn't stop me. Here's my director telling me he wasn't, gonna, he wasn't going to uh, write me a letter of recommendation, which I obviously needed. And I just paid no attention to that, that I can recall. And I applied for a, for a part-time job uh, elsewhere, thinking I would show him. And I screwed up the interview because I was loaded during the interview. And, um, and ended up being confronted in a hotel room in San Antonio in a, at a medical convention by a good friend who's here today and who I, I later returned the favor to. Um, what happened was I ended up in the hospital in Seattle. It was my own hospital, unfortunately, and uh, it was not a pleasant experience because I was being cared for by the same house officers that a week before I had been, uh, I had been teaching and uh, dispersing my knowledge upon. And I hid in my hotel. You know, I hid in, hid in this room for three weeks while they detoxed me from all of my various drugs. So that was my treatment center. Fortunately, I had a psychiatrist assigned to me who was a, a younger psychiatrist on the staff of the University of Washington. And he happened to have some experience in addiction medicine during his training at uh, Roosevelt Hospital in New York. And he had an old psychiatrist who said that the only thing you can do with drug addicts and alcoholics is send them to AA. And, similar organizations. And he told me that's what I needed to do. Now, I'd been to AA meetings as a teenager with my dad as a visitor. Uh, and uh, I knew about AA, so I didn't have the misconceptions that people normally have about AA. Uh, so I knew a fair amount about alcoholism. I knew a fair amount about AA. But when the psychiatrist told me that I needed to go to AA, my reaction, which I didn't vocalize because I didn't want him to be unhappy with me, um, was, well, but the problem is that AA is for alcoholics. 
And I knew I, you know, I was using lots of alcohol, was using lots of drugs, but I had an anxiety neurosis with existential uh, complications. And, um, and my problem in life was that I was super sensitive, super intelligent, could really see all the pain and suffering in the world, and had to medicate myself. And, you know, I wasn't an alcoholic, uh, but because I had to keep him happy, um, I, you know, I went and did what I was told. And I, my wife acted the same way. She managed, unfortunately, to get into Al-Anon about the same time. And she had the same sort of expression on her face that the psychiatrist was, had, which was this very rigid, I thought, uh, inflexible attitude that I, she want, I could tell very much she wanted me to go to AA, and I knew that there would be dire consequences if I didn't. So I went to AA. And um, I was not comfortable. I, I can remember the, the hardest thing about, in, in my first few AA meetings, I, I'm an inveterate people pleaser, so I, you know, I try to fit in, I try to figure out what I was supposed to do, what I was supposed to say. And I um, um, remember writing on, co- on the sides of coffee cups. I'd, I'd prepare, as soon as I hit the meeting, I'd start preparing something to say, because God forbid I was gonna have to go up and talk about what else but how I felt. And I had never talked about how I felt to anybody. I talked about what I wanted, what, they, what I figured out they wanted me to say about how I was supposed to be feeling, or something along those lines. But to actually talk about how I felt, God, that was frightening. Uh, and uh, it took me a few meetings to kind of figure out what to say and, you know, how to, how to keep them happy too. So here I was keeping everybody happy. And my first year in AA was not comfortable or pleasant. Um, I was probably as anxious as I was during the last year of drinking, and the worst part was I was awake and, um, and feeling all of this stuff and going through it all. But something started to happen, and uh, I'm not, I've, I certainly tried in those first few months to figure out how AA worked. I just about drove myself bats, as you can imagine, analyzing AA into the ground. Uh, wisely trying to stay away from reading books about AA and trying to digest the big book, but feeling very uneasy and not sleeping well and, and uh, in a lot of discomfort and having a lot of trouble with this higher power stuff. Um, I'd been raised as a Catholic and uh, had had a lot of problems with Catholic dogma and um, managed to deal with just kind of ignoring religion, God, and all that sort of stuff for, for as long as I could remember before that. And this God stuff certainly got to me and bothered me. And um, probably the most uh, be, the most important thing I did do was that I went to lots of meetings. I went to over 90 meetings in 90 days. And I, I hesitate to say got a sponsor. I was sort of a, a sponsor sort of showed up for me um, while I was in the hospital. This gentleman who's now deceased uh, came to visit me. And he was a very soft-spoken fellow who'd had some medical background. He actually was a Boeing engineer, but um, because he couldn't finish, he couldn't afford to finish his uh, medical and dental training. But he was a very wise type, the kind you read about in the AA literature. And um, I can, the first thing he, of consequence he said to me was while I was in the hospital and I was being detoxed and he came in and he sat and he just let me go on and on and on, um, spilling my guts out. And he sat there and he had this sort of cherubinic grin on his face and he just said you do wonderful things for my sobriety 
and I couldn't figure that one out. <laughs> I thought maybe he was, I didn't know he was making fun of me, but uh, um, I sensed that maybe I sounded kind of crazy. And that was the first inkling that maybe, maybe, just perhaps, part of the problem was me and not the world or the universe or all of that sort of stuff that I had been uh, all wound up with. Um, I used to call him at night all the time. I called him up at 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning, you know, my brain going a mile a minute in, those first, in that first year. And um, he had some, he'd listen to me, and his replies were of a few terse syllables. Uh, he said, uh, well, you're in the crucible. And he says, sounds to me like you're right on schedule. As a matter of fact, that's what he, al he always said to me that I sounded like I was right on schedule. It was very maddening cause, uh, because, see, I wanted, I wanted a guru. I wanted someone to give me all the answers. I wanted uh, the answer with a capital T and a capital A. And um, he was nudging me into growing up a bit. That's really, I think, what it all boils down to. And gradually uh, letting me see that the problem, to a large extent, might be me. Um, I resisted that idea for a long time. I probably still resist it in, in many ways, but in many times. But gradually that notion, I think, started to, started to take a little, uh, take hold uh, with me. And actually, you know, it got, it's kind of funny. After a couple of years in the program, it got so that if I was having a problem, I'd, I'd go to call up George. And I just walked to the phone and started to dial, and, and I didn't have to talk to him. Because the act of going and, and maybe just surrendering or something enough to go and talk with him, I kind of knew what he was going to say, and I kind of knew what I had to do and what the answer was. And I'd, half the time, I didn't even finish the phone call. It was the doggone thing. Um, and, you know, I don't know what this AA magic thing is. Um, I haven't analyzed the program nearly as much as I used to. But I probably still, uh, like all of us, uh, I was trained, my whole training was uh, being analytical and being um, scientific and probing so that you can't stop totally. Uh, and I've got some ideas as to what makes the program work, but it, they probably doesn't matter that much. Uh, I've become very, um, not anti-intellectual about this program, but, but sort of unintellectual. Early on, I had to be anti-intellectual because my brain was, I thought my brain was, uh, was in great shape. And I, someone pointed out to me that my, my brain is what got me to the doorstep of AA. And that was very humbling. But, uh, you know, the program, in terms of how it works uh, for me today, um, I'd have to say that uh, well, one, a, one reply here on AA is uh, that program works just fine, thank you, and I, I think that's true. Um, one of my favorite pieces of AA literature from early on was the Members I, Be Members I View pamphlet, and I can remember reading that early on, and somehow that, that was a very important piece to me, because it talked about sort of in a general way how the program worked in, in terms that made sense to me and, and continue to make sense to me. And, you know, they talk in that pamphlet about gradually coming to grips with the idea that, uh, that you have to, sooner or later, if you're going to get sober and have a quality of sobriety, you have to face your enemies. 
And lo and behold, when you get done doing, going through your steps and working four and five and doing eight and nine and doing all the things you're supposed to do, you gradually come, you gradually come to see that uh, you're sitting down at a table with yourself. And it's sort of like Pogo said, you know, we've met the enemy and the enemy is us. However, I found that uh, one of the things that, uh, one of the problems I've had uh, all along being raised in an alcoholic family where emotions and feelings were never really well discussed, that, uh, that uh, I can be too hard on myself. And I've done that a lot in sobriety, as I mentioned, I think back when I first talked in an IDA meeting in 79, that's exactly what I was doing. So I was being too doggone, too, dar- too doggone hard on myself and not really being kind to myself and, and not relaxing and learning um, how to accept the, the love that I, that I received around this fellowship. And, and that's probably the thing that I've worked on most in the last few years of sobriety. Uh, I've come to believe that this program does keep getting better and better uh, on a regular basis. I gave AA early on, about a year and a half. I thought that was, uh, I thought, I remember early on, I said, I think about a year and a half, and that ought about do it. I'd be pretty much back together on my feet, um, and, uh, and then I could afford to go out and maybe be a circuit speaker or, you know, dispense wisdom on the rest of the AA fellowship. And it was really about a year and a half that I was just settling down and beginning to feel a little comfortable. I think that um, one of the other key things, one of the other key phrases for me in AA literature was the, is in one of the steps, and I forget what it is, I think it's in step four, um, where it talks about living upon a basis of unsatisfied demands. We were in a state of continual disturbance and frustration. Uh, the first time I read that, it was one of those things that every, I'm sure all of you have the, the things in AA literature that hit you, but that one really hit me right between the eyes. And um, I really did live upon a basis of unsatisfied demands. And many of those demands were demands for material success, for recognition in the medical field, which I didn't think I was ever going to get. But also, I think some of the demands were the excessive demands that I made upon myself, uh, uh, or that I blamed God for not giving me enough of so that I could function in the way I wanted to. And I've had to deal deal with some of those things, some of those uh, things that perhaps relate to being raised in an alcoholic, uh, in an alcoholic family situation. Um, what's it like today? Um, it's, it's getting better. It gets better by fits and starts, but it, it gets steadily better. And I think I can honestly say that. What keeps me going is the day-to-day practice of this program. I, uh, someone said this morning about how at the end of an AA meeting saying, I keep coming back, it's work. Uh, and I'm going to remember that. That's, that's something I'm going to take away from this meeting. And it is work. Uh, and for me to stay sober requires that I work this program on a daily basis, even after a few years in the program. Uh, once you start unpeeling the onion uh, that makes up your personality, I don't think you can ever go back. I found that I've unpeeled layers of the onion and I know enough about me that if I start slacking off, I get crazy pretty quickly. And that requires that I keep up a certain amount of meeting attendance, that I talk to other people in the program. Uh, It requires for me that I meditate on a regular basis, that I take the time um, to work this program. That's uh, probably my biggest 
uh, my biggest problem because I just uh, figured it should be all working itself by now. But it is. It doesn't. It takes time. It takes uh, a certain amount of uh, effort from the day and periodically more effort going to conferences and, um, and talking to you folks to keep me to keep me sober in the fullest sense of the word. I've been granted, uh, you know, a nice uh, family situation. I have a wonderful wife. I have three neat kids. I've got uh, a busy medical practice. I'm the senior man in my group, um, financially doing just fine. And, and it, that's something I'm terribly, all of those things I'm terribly, terribly grateful for. Um, but if I don't have the, if I don't have my peace of mind and my serenity, none of that, you know, I, I can still get crazy really quick, and I can pretend everything is fine. Um, so I have to come come around here and be honest. And I, I think that IDAA has really been a huge part of my sobriety. Uh, you you people made it okay for me to be a recovering alcoholic physician, and that makes it okay for me to go out and to talk to other recovering alcoholic physicians and to and to try and help them out uh, and of course when you try and help them out you get better too so it really all keeps coming around so thank you all very much for uh, for my sobriety and um, and to keep coming back